Greetings, future fossils, and welcome back for episode 187 of the podcast that explores our place and time. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and today I'm excited to welcome back Kevin Welch, chair of the board for EFF Austin, as well as board member David Hensley, two very interesting and savvy people working to preserve our civil liberties in the ever-morphing electronic frontier. This was a special, rare, live podcast recording at the West China Tea House in Austin, where I just got back from my first vacation in over three years, if you can even call long-distance traveling with two small children a vacation. But it was nonetheless very good for my soul and the soul of my wife to see so many of our old friends and visit so many of our old favorite haunts from before we became parents and moved to Santa Fe. One of those places, again, is the West China Tea House, where I did this recording and also played a short concert, some of which I will share here shortly on the Patreon. Speaking of which, I want to take a moment to celebrate and thank new patrons Emerson Sparts, Paul Jakeman, Brandon Norgard, and Luke for helping me keep this show afloat. Folks, Future Fossils is and always has been listener-supported and extremely weird. It is not the kind of show that easily finds sponsors, even if they were the way that I wanted to sustain this program. And so your modest contributions really make the difference for me as I navigate the insanity of early parenthood and balancing the responsibilities of this show and all of the other things I do for it, including the moderation of the Future Fossils Facebook and Discord groups. Plus, rather than pissing into the wind of major social media channels every time I want to share something new, it is an honor and a delight to have a small, focused group of fans with whom I can share all of my new music and art and other fun things, unpublished writing, etc. And we just reformed the Future Fossils book club, so no longer am I trying to host these synchronous video calls, and instead I'm just using the Discord server's patron-only channels as a place where I can drop excerpts, clippings, and notes on my favorite current reads that's going really well although i imagine that we will also soon have some watch parties because we are in fact in the golden age of cinematic narrative as far as i'm concerned and there's been a lot of cool stuff worth viewing and discussing and i hope to do that with you soon anyway this episode is a really broad general conversation about the challenges posed by technologies accelerating evolution and the inability of people to understand its consequences or for regulation to properly keep pace with it. It dovetails very nicely with the last EFF Austin event that I did together with Kevin and a number of other excellent people, which I will link to in the show notes, as well as copious links and resources if you don't feel like listening to this episode with a pen and paper at hand. As always, 
the complete show notes are available on Patreon because podcast syndicators truncate my show notes and it's important to me that I make the effort to give you something far more replete and in-depth than is characteristic for this format. Last note before we begin, I have an extensive list of planned upcoming guests, but I don't find that list to be terribly well representative of the full spectrum of human diversity, and I welcome additional suggestions. If you want to offer guest suggestions, then you can DM me on Twitter, or you can add them to the upcoming guests channel in the Discord server. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you remain free and easy with plenty of grace under pressure during this mind-bogglingly complicated and tumultuous time. Thanks again for your support, whether it comes in the form of rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Immensely helpful. I don't think I have to remind you or buying artwork or music. And again, a a thanks and a note of appreciation to everyone who has been doing that recently. Much more good stuff to come. And until then, enjoy this very far-reaching and beautifully ornate conversation with Kevin Welch and David Hensley. All right. So again, thank you everyone for being here and thanks for putting up with my music for the last half an hour. And we'll do more later if you can survive it. But for now, a completely different ordeal. And I mean that in the sweetest way because I want to just set the the frame here. As I was telling the the guys before we got started, Future Fossils is a, a podcast about us living in what I believe to be a very unusual time. And like every generation feels that way, or so we would like to think. But the truth of it is, where I work at the Santa Fe Institute. It's an international hub for complex systems research. And, and one of our faculty members is, is Stuart Firestein, who just gave a talk that I was responsible for covering on Twitter. And you can find on the at SFI Science Twitter account about ignorance, failure, uncertainty and optimism and he's the former chair of or the director of the columbia university biology department and spent 15 years in new york theater before he went into biology so he's somebody whose authority i assume and he's a a brilliant interesting well-rounded guy and he loves talking about the 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 role of uncertainty in what he calls being optimistical like a philosophical optimism in which you accept that things can change and therefore things could be better and therefore maybe things will be better. And that, that he reminds us that that was not always the case, that for hundreds or thousands of years, depending on the culture in which you were born, people didn't really expect that things were ever going to be different. And we've, had, we've lived in this weird circumstance over the last few centuries where progress was assumed, if not, you know, at least sort of hoped for. And that people expected that, you know, their children were going to inherit a different world than they inherited. So, you know, I I do think that we're in a kind of a special time because, you know, every generation has its own challenges, but ours are especially large, pernicious, systemic, 
interlaid, complex, unpredictable, highly contingent on the ways that we interact with them. And, and the more that we try to understand something, the, the sort of the more our ability to predict that thing slips out from our fingers and vice versa. You can predict very well, but you can't understand how the, their predictive algorithms came to that, that accurate assessment. So at, we live in a time that we do expect things to be different. We can't say how. Uh, and it's very uncomfortable. And so this show exists as a way of creating a record of what it was like to be alive at this very unusual time when so very much was uncertain. And and with that, I I want to give Kevin and David an opportunity to introduce themselves here as individuals. We already know that they're representing a very fine organization that I highly encourage you to support, EFF Austin, which I'm sure they'll talk more about here in a minute. But anyway, thank you for coming back Kevin, and, and thank you, David, for being here. And uh, yeah, talk about yourselves a little bit. Sure, I guess I'll go first, and then I'll uh, hand things over to David. Uh, is that level how you want it? Okay, there we go. All right, um, first of all, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out to community. We're very grateful to have all of you here. And uh, as always, I want to thank Michael for the opportunity to speak on his amazing podcast. If you've never listened to Future Fossils, you absolutely should give it a listen. He's, if other podcasts leave you going, I, I wish they went 10 layers deeper. His is the podcast for you. <laughs> but he has lots of really interesting people really asking really meaty, interesting philosophical questions about this weird time in history. But but yeah, I've, as Michael said, I was on a panel for a live podcast taping of his about four years ago, back when Michael still lived in Austin. Was also on that with uh, two other EFF Austin board members, Heather Barfield, who's here tonight, as well as Maggie Duvall, who also now lives out in New Mexico, where Michael now lives. So yeah, we had a lot of fun with that conversation. Yeah, and I guess just to give a little spiel, yeah, I'm Kevin Welch. I'm the current president of the board at EFF Austin. It is a 30 years old, Austin-based, as you might gather from the name, Digital Civil Liberties Organization. I was not there when it was founded because I was in this city, but I was like three. So uh, I came along much later. And so to be clear, we are closely affiliated with Electronic Frontier Foundation, which was founded about the same time in San Francisco. In fact, a former president of EFF Austin, Rich McKinnon, was literally in the room in Silicon Valley where Electronic Frontier Foundation was founded. Our organizations are highly intertwined. There was a lot of cross-pollination of the people who founded both. But if you've never heard of Electronic Frontier Foundation, it is the nation's oldest and largest digital civil liberties advocacy organization. They fight for things like net neutrality, end-to-end encryption, protecting Section 230 of the CDA, which we'll probably talk about at some point tonight. And just, you know, basically you can kind of think of them as the ACLU for the Internet and emerging digital technologies. They especially fight for your First and Fourth Amendment rights in emerging digital spaces. So, yeah, I try to do education and rabble-rousing here in Austin with the organization. I'm a uh, full-stack software developer by my day job, so I hopefully know some some stuff about this that is relevant, though I'm always learning more every... That's enough about me. Let's let David talk a little bit and introduce himself. He, who David is also on our board. Hello, everyone. I'm David. I'm actually really excited to be on this show because I have a, I've actually a few friends who actually like Future Fossils, and they were like, oh my god, this show reminds me of you. And I hate to like, say that because that sounds kind of egotistical, but it's like, oh, 
yeah, I can see a lot of overlap in the way that I think and the subjects that are being discussed in this content. And so to actually like be discussing content on the show, it's like super meta. So thank you. I, like Kevin said, am on the EFF Austin board. I'm more of a researcher, writer type of person, so I do a lot of research and writing. I also like to imagine that I'm one of the comic book characters that I love so much, and that's how I continue to read dense, boring literature so that I can make it more digestible for everyone in situations such as these, and uh, that's pretty much who I am. So there, there's a little intro for you, Michael. <laughs> Great. So one of the things that I want to raise with you, and we're going to take a kind of a less structured approach to this than I ordinarily would, because I'm not in a planning mood this week. I'm technically on vacation, if you can believe this. But I, but I love just jazzing with smart people. And, Likewise. And, and what I want to, like where I want to start this is that all of us are, I think I can say, very concerned about the relationship between technology and culture, but there's like this thing that Cory Doctorow, who is a big, a famous science fiction author and a big member of the parent organization, the EFF organization, when he was out in Santa Fe a few years ago, I saw him speak and he said <coughs> about science fiction, that science fiction usually looks at things kind of atomistically. It's a thought experiment in which people kind of treat it like a controlled experiment where you're changing one variable. Anybody who's followed the the drama of Biosphere 2, which was this big facility they built in, in Arizona in the 90s, and then was eventually stolen by a hostile takeover crew sponsored by the, the Bass Oil Fortune, which helped you know, fund the thing in the first place, but then decided that this thing was kind of a bad PR opportunity for them because it was getting a lot of attention around the world for attempting to reproduce the entire earth biosphere inside a building, like a, a seminal historic event. But it was, it was understood as an, like a game show, like an effort to lock eight brave people inside a building for two years and see if they could pull it off, like farm all of their own food and maintain the atmosphere. And of course that was a goal, but it wasn't the goal. This was an experiment that was intended to run 50 times in a row over the course of a century, just to see what kind of weird nonlinear events would occur, like what unpredictable things would happen. And so unpredictable things did happen, and, and they generated too much CO2, and they almost choked themselves out, and they eventually had to open the building. All of this stuff is gathered in a movie called Spaceship Earth, a documentary I highly respect and recommend. But the point was that in the 90s, people didn't understand that science could succeed through failing. The point is that you learn something through finding out something that you didn't know about the conditions that you set for the experiment. And, and ecological experiments are full of these opportunities. And so they were like, oh, they lost the game show. We better call in Steve Bannon and shut this down and force all of these people out of the building with an armed federal team. And I feel like there's something in that story that's like kind of a lesson about like the way that we think about speculative futures and the like somebody over here is an expert in climate change and somebody over here is an expert in you know, computer science and these people tend to project their own sort of narrow domain of expertise 
into a future and not understand all of the sort of second order stuff going on around the future that they see so clearly. And, and so all of us are, are sort of presuming our own knowledge into futures that are going to get sidelined by all of this other stuff that we don't understand. And I'm just curious, I mean, at that point, that's like a long, weird kind of, but like, I'm, I'm curious to know kind of what you see, what you're confident about, about the future. And then kind of like what you, in the Donald Rumsfeld sense, like what are the known unknowns for you, the, the places where you feel like what you think is going to happen might be challenged. How do all the pieces sort of loosely fit together for you? And, and what do you see coming? And what might interrupt that? Like what might stop the future you see from coming from coming, I guess. And then we can kind of explore the unknown unknowns or try to. Well, that's a very easy question to answer. So shouldn't shouldn't be hard. I have some thoughts on that. And I'll turn it over to David and hear his thoughts in a second. But I think I just wanted to start with I think it's it's interesting you go back to the 90s and this sort of utopian vision of Biosphere 2 that then ended in colossal failures, both of just not anticipating some of the scientific consequences, but also the societal capitalistic interplay that undermined the utopian vision. And I think feelings in, like that are very resonant with the the fight and struggle for digital civil liberties and the idea of you know, the internet, in the 90s, there was a common countercultural thread of thinking of the internet as what you might call a cyberdelic, sort of created by Timothy Weary, of all people, who was friends with the people who founded EFF, actually, because one of the founders of EFF was the Grateful Dead lyricist John Perry Barlow, so he was good friends with Timothy Weary. But there was sort of this sense that, just like in the 60s, that psychedelic drugs are going to be mind-expanding, a lot of these early cyberpunks felt very much the same way about the internet, that almost as the phenomenologists would say, the internet was a mental technology that was going to expand people's minds. And so there was a lot of techno-utopianism, kind of exemplified by John Perry Barlow famously in 1996 at the World Davos Con Conference in Switzerland, which, as you all know, that's basically the Illuminati clubhouse. But basically, Barlow goes in there, this kind of countercultural dude who's been invited there because he's from a rich Wyoming ranching family and also is an expert on the emerging internet that all these Davos people want to know about. But he famously wrote the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace at 1996 in Davos. And it's an incredible document because it's both so utopian, but it also appears with 25 years hindsight, remarkably optimistically naive about what the internet would do and what it was capable of. And I still believe in the idealism in that document, but... The, what has actually happened with the internet over the last 25 years, I'm forced to conclude that maybe building a technology to unite all of us in peace, love, and understanding is not as easy as maybe we all thought 25 years ago. That, that's where my mind initially goes with that, Michael. And, and I think I could say a lot more, but I want to hear David's initial thoughts before I continue or we go somewhere else. So before I go on my incohesive tangent, so the question, the current question is kind of exploring our known unknowns, correct? Is that what you wanted us to kind of catalog, Michael? Yeah. Okay. So the known unknowns, I think, or that come to my mind is we know that 
not everyone is going to have access to the same resources if we continue on our current path. And that being the case, that will create various aesthetics that will kind of form and evolve around what people are doing with what they have. And then insofar as we continue to allow markets to dominate our social organizational structures, certain trends and languages and all kinds of aspects will find their way into more industrial powerhouses and that'll kind of like determine, okay, exactly what aesthetics are going to be the most popular or least popular and that'll just keep fluctuating. And I think that it's going to be kind of like we're living in a, everyone's living in a different timeline almost, but at the same time, kind of like how we deal with ideology now. People live in dramatically different realities, but we can all be sitting in the same room at the same time. And I think that, like, what I don't know is what technology is going to do what, because, I mean, we're, like, what, how many steps away from quantum computing, just changing everything that we know about, like, like computers, right? And so, I don't know. I think we know that different tech... Oh, sorry, am I too close to the... We know that different technologies are going to happen and change people's lives, but we don't know who's going to have access to what, and we don't know how that's going to affect our uh, organizational structures. All right. So so the sort of follow-up to that would be then, I think a lot about, well, you know, I grew up with Jurassic Park. And so, like, I've spent now 31 years meditating on the inability of technocratic systems to contain the unintended consequences that they create. And Crichton was very prescient writing that novel in the 80s about biotechnology that is still barely in the works. But the last two years, whether the coronavirus was a zoonotic illness or whether it was a, an escaped gain-of-function experiment, the fact is that it's something that only happened because the processes of globalism have done everything in their self-organizing agency to knock down barriers between systems that have natural barriers between them. That's actually, incidentally, that's why this has been a golden age for dinosaur science. I talked about that with paleontologist Steve Brusati in episode 70, about how it's actually... <laughs> The Chinese building condos, their rise into modern pseudo-capitalism or whatever you call that is why we've had this explosion of new dinosaur discoveries coming out of China for the last 30 years. And that's true all over the global south. That's why we've discovered the biggest dinosaurs that have ever lived down in, in Argentina, you know, because they're developing all of this land. And, and so I think about biotechnology in particular as something that like CRISPR. I don't know how many of you know this gene editing technology that they've now decided some group of people acting without proper oversight have decided that they're going to use this technology to edit mosquitoes so that mosquitoes are not carrying malaria. And of course, like, this sounds great for about 30 seconds if you've never thought about it before. But then, of course, you're like, wait a minute. The whole food chain on land depends on mosquitoes. What if we have the non-zero chance that we fuck this up? You know, that suddenly the whole ecosystem collapses around us because we were trying to silver bullet this disease. And, and so I'm curious. I love what you said, David, about 
There's pluralism involved here and the splintering. And that's certainly true. But at the same time, like I think about people that are like, well, my experience of Twitter is great because I just mute everybody I don't like. And I'm like, you're living in a gated neighborhood. Crime still happens. And eventually the, the tide of crime will come seeping in through the gates of your cozy little paradise of willful ignorance. And so I do think that the world will continue to splinter culturally, socially, even biologically, that, you know, humans are going to speciate with garage gene editing experiments, you know. But at the same time, we're also going to be catching each other's engineered, mind-altering plagues that have been just sneezed into the atmosphere. And so I'm curious where the two of you see that sort of squiggly boundary between what it is that we can effectively wall off in source cell. What can we keep separate? And what what are the things that, regardless of the direction that we want our own local and regional lives and, and sort of cultural subcultural lives to take, there are going to be things that everyone has to contend with. And I'm curious what those things are and, and, and what you see basically as the parts of our lives as individuals, whatever that means anymore, that are sort of sacrosanct and invulnerable to the constant reshuffling of boundaries. Are there any of those things, I guess, is a good way to start it. And if they are, what are they? And, 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 and if not, then what are we all stuck with? Like, what are the things that you see, this, the waves you see washing over all of us, no matter what little island we choose to live on? So if I understand your question correctly, a Marxist would say the material conditions are what is the kind of common denominator that literally everyone shares. And so food, water, shelter, safety from wild animals and developing diseases. I think those are the things that will that are that will forever bind people. But let me think some more because I want to believe that there is something that I'm missing, but it's an unknown it's a known unknown. So thermodynamics. Well, what are we going to have to deal with even if we try to live in blissful ignorance? Well, I mean you know, it ties into, you know, I, I find myself at this weird place often in my activism where I tend to be pretty anarchistic in my leanings. I tend to be suspicious of power imbalances wherever you find them, whether that via the government or corporations. I don't like people taking advantage of other people. But, you know, a lot. Yet, despite that, I'm always very politically involved. I always encourage people to vote, 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 vote in every single election, fight every way you can to make a better world, even if these systems are flawed. I even present it almost like, you know, as, as I said, I'm a programmer by trade, and I'm like, just because I can't write bug-free code doesn't mean I stop writing programs. Just because any government system by necessity is flawed doesn't mean you stop engaging with it. You get the world you build. And so I think, you know, when I see people get cynical, you know, and they're, they, they, to your point where they're just like, I'm going to make my blissful little bubble or anytime I see these memes of like, oh, well, I'm going to turn my phone off and I'm going to go into the woods and I'm going to ignore all this hate from all sides and just, you know, the problem is the phone and the technology and that I'm learning all these horrible things. And I'm like, well, you know, if there's a flood coming your way, the flood doesn't stop coming your way just because you turn the radio warning you about it off. You're still going to drown. So I guess in a way, I, I do have a similar answer to David's, but maybe almost like a non-materialist, maybe almost a, you know, a uh, phenomenological or, you know, 
like, I'm forgetting the term, but like George Berkeley, the philosopher, famously said, there is no matter, there is only mind. And so I'm like, maybe viewing it like even in these digital worlds, there are psychic waves that are going to come for you, even if you try to ignore them. So I think that the things that the different perspectives disagree with are what's actually going to be the most binding things because if one person's in one reality and one person's in another reality and they come across an occurrence and they can't agree on the nature or the actuality of that occurrence that in and of itself is a binding psychic un is unresonance a word sure dissonance dissonance there we go that's yeah. that's a psychic dissonance between ontologies and then it becomes up to the various parties that are disagreeing to figure out who's actually wrong. That process in and of itself is a, a lot of obstacles, a lot of ego to work through, a lot of fear. And I think that those invoke somatic experiences that we also all share. And once we all actually start respecting each other's somatic experiences, independent of our own context to the stimulation of those experiences... I think that's where we're all truly united because that is what our brains and bodies do. Maybe I can sort of like refine this question based on the feedback that both of you just offered. I want to champion the work that you're doing and that EFF is doing because in a much more mundane way than I th we've been talking up to this point, I think there are, when we talk about like the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, there are these, every technology creates these footholds for something in which something can grow. It's an evolutionary biology kind of thing. Every new thing in an ecosystem creates new niches, new opportunities in, into which other organisms can adapt and which they can. And this is true in the, with legal technologies. This is true with law that, you know, the, I think it's very obvious not to linger on this, but it's very obvious given the horrors that we've experienced as a nation over the last few years with these mass shootings, I'm not saying anything you haven't heard, that the legal framework that we inherited that's 300 years old didn't account for AR-15s. It didn't, didn't account for a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, and, and the same is true for free speech. Like, free speech wasn't like that. We weren't prepared for Twitter. We weren't prepared for Donald Trump. We weren't prepared for people. We weren't prepared for an unchristian society. <laughs> right. We weren't, well, we weren't prepared for a society, <laughs> many reasons, yeah. But like, we weren't prepared for a society in which one person's voice can reach 300 million people at the same time. And the effects of the, the, the asymmetries of influence that arise out of that space and what it means for somebody to, to say things in public at such a scale. And so, you know, and I think the same can be said, and this is my point, and this is what I want to, the two of you to speak to. I think the same can be said for pretty much any law about digital communications technologies because ultimately we're living in an age in which Silicon Valley and the values that it exports and the values that it promotes through its innovation are values. It's a world in which the human being is a digital creature. It is, it is an algorithmic creature. We're not talking about the self of rational enlightenment France. That's sort of this discrete atomistic agent. We're talking about somebody whose brain, in the words of neuroscientist David Eagleman, made me do it. This is the defense of someone who is like the Twinkie defense, right? Like I'm a, I'm a biochemical creature 
and you can stimulate my brain with electrodes and force me to do something. You know, Michael Crichton, another no- shout out to his novel Terminal Man. You know, so like we live in the world of Terminal Man as much as we live in the world of Jurassic Park uh, or Andromeda Strain. Uh, sorry, or not so much Congo yet, but that's probably coming. Anyway, so, you know, it seems to me like the entire conversation that EFF is is advancing is not simply about computers and the importance of encrypting one's cell phone. It's about what happens when technology reaches the core of the individual modern person that's no longer an individual, but is, a, is as Deleuze said, like individual or, or, you know, another way to think is like porous. Like, they're, you know, we're connected with each other messily and we're... A rhizome. Yeah, we're subdivisible into all of these different modular units now. And so, like, the implications of the law around digital technology extend into the most intimate places of each of us. It's not just about whether somebody can hack your bank account. It's about whether ultimately somebody can hack your pacemaker. And then a few years later, it's, it's about whether somebody can hack your neural link. And then a few years later, it's about whether somebody can hack your genome. And these are questions that we're, most people don't seem to be thinking about and prepared for. So I'd, I'd love to hear you speak to that. Well, I have a lot I can speak to that. First of all, I I totally resonate with the thought about like, yeah, I mean, there's immense similarities between law as a profession and programming as a profession. They both involve, in a way, writing magic spells, as it were, actually. Like one, I mean, first of all, anybody who tells you that uh, speech can't hurt people, speech isn't dangerous, they are wrong. If speech wasn't dangerous, no one would ever try to ban it. It is incredibly powerful. I really think of an interview I saw with the fame uh, graphic novelist Alan Moore one time where he points out it is not a coincidence that when we write and say that we spell words that it's the same root as magic spell. That is not a coincidence. They linguistically come from the same place because many ancient cultures understood the act of speaking is magical. It, it, it is actually a mind control technology. By speaking, you can change somebody's mind and make them do what you think they should do. So not only is it a constant process of literally shaping our shared reality with each other, creating the law, but, but I mean, to, to David's point of like that, you know, it's a work in progress that got a lot wrong. Well, I even think to anybody interested in this conversation, I highly recommend go watching the new George Carvin documentary, American Dream on HBO. Like that man has some smart things to say about free speech. And What he said that I thought was so resonant of this is he basically was like, you don't have rights. It's made up. We made them all up, basically. So this document, we're all arguing over what it meant. We made it up. It is nothing real that we cannot change if we want to change it. And so, yeah, I mean, what we're discovering is we're being hamstrung by concepts that were created in a totally different historical framework that are breaking down. To your point, Michael, it's like, you know, okay, so freedom of speech. I have the right to say what I want. But does that equal that I have the right to have every other human on the planet has to hear every utterance I make? And if they don't hear it for any reason, that's censorship and my First Amendment rights are being violated. I, I mean... I don't think the law even ever considered a scenario when it was written in the late 1700s that I would be able to speak to all 7 billion people on the planet with my speech. It, it's, it just didn't even consider the possibility. I just, I find our notion of the freedom of speech so humorous. 
it's so archaic. And I'll keep this short because I actually want to answer your question. It's just that someone got mad at Parliament because they wanted to write about divorce. And their claim was that because truth will always reign supreme, freedom of speech should basically be allowed. I like being able to say what I like to say. I think everyone should be able to say what they want to say. But I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say that after the neurological research that has been done and has shown that consistent exposure to disinformation changes your ability to believe things that what we've learned now is is exceeded that archaic idea of the, of of how what truth can do and when you, when you live in a world where you're bombarded by advertisements and propaganda and all kinds of subliminal messaging and movies and TV and books and music. It's just hard for me to like actually believe that truth will reign supreme in a profit driven society. But that wasn't the answer to your question. I just wanted to go off about the freedom of speech for a minute. No, I'm good. Uh, um, Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> We've outgrown money. It's, but no, to your point on technology reaching our inner core now, while there are a lot of like biological hazards regarding like pacemakers and things like that, I also think that the way that the algorithms to the various tools that we use bring us content based on what we seek is kind of a form of shadow work. And if you're seeing bullshit on your social media feed, Maybe you should consider why you're interested in bullshit. Not to say that it's going to bring you bullshit, you know, regardless of what you do or do not choose, because you're just going to see some stupid shit on social media because it's social media. <laughs> but also, a lot of what you see is going to be driven by your decision making. And that's invasive, yes. I'm not going to say that's not invasive. But it's also an opportunity for us, I think, to really think about our actual immaterial cores and how technology is going to affect us. I think that it's an opportunity for reflection, honestly. And and actually to answer your question more directly, one thing I was reading recently that I think really gets to the core of the way that neurobiologically, neurochemically, these systems are really changing who we are and how we relate to each other is that, you know, everybody is wringing their hands, rightfully in some cases, ridiculously in others about censorship by the big platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, like YouTube. But there's actually a far more insidious form of censorship in digital spaces that doesn't really get discussed very often, which is what is the main neurochemical reward of modern social networks and feeds? It is the ubiquitous like we want to get likes, we want to get hearts, we want to get ha-has, we want to get numbers saying what I said was appreciated by the other people. And what starts happening when you can quantify approval is, and no matter how much you mean not to do this and speak your real opinion, you will start altering your thoughts to be what the algorithm rewards, what gets you likes, what gets you thoughts. You will start self-censoring to get approval from your community, and you you're won't even realize the, this is happening. You're talking about that The Internet is Made of Demons article uh, yes, that you and I both uh, read and uh, loved. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah, I worry about self-censorship you don't even know you're doing more than platform censorship. Not that that can't be a huge problem sometimes. So that's a, that's a really good, I want to linger there on that because, you know, there was between that piece, which I will link to in the show notes. And if you get on my, 
infrequent emails, I'll make sure that I remind myself to send you this that article. And then this other article that at the New York Review of Books that Tim Snyder wrote about what Turing did not understand about the digital threat to a human future, which is largely about the agency of these non-human discarnate things that now inhabit this digital wilderness we've created that, you know, or like, I like the way Eric Davis talks about it, where he talks about reanimism, that there's something about the affordances of a tangled electronic surround in which we find ourselves now that are more like the world of like Amazonian shamanism than they are like the world of Oscar Wilde and like cucumber sandwiches and writing each other letters with flirtatiously, you know, all this like 18th, 19th century stuff that it's like, no, we live in a world in which we have not beaten away the tigers and the dragons and so on. And we are surrounded by things we don't understand. We're made out of things we don't understand. Like we know that like, you know, like this, this whole thing about now I'm getting gut health stuff on Facebook. You want to talk about shadow work. It's like I must have bought one too many bottles of Pepto-Bismol or something. And now now it's making me reflect on my habits and how my habits are not only influencing this invisible microbial system inside of me, but also this sort of digital microbial system in which I'm embedded. We're, we're living in a very highly populated and mysterious ecosystem in which humans are no longer capable of diluting ourselves that we exist on the top of a food chain. We've somehow vanquished and conquered everything else in the world. And so, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear in the context of everything else that we've has been said in this conversation, I'd love to know kind of how your reflections on that influences you see all of this other stuff unfolding. Because for me, and I talked about this with Chris Ryan, the, the author of a book called Civilized to Death and the host of the fantastic Tangentially Speaking podcast on Future Fossils 178. Because he, you know, he and I were talking about how human institutions like EFF Austin, like the United, you know, like the Federal Reserve, like Disney, these things are in a way like organisms in their own right. You know, they're made out of people and buildings and cultural beliefs and behaviors and they so therefore they don't immediately step out and look like a tiger to people like it's not obvious at first that you're dealing with this thing that has its own goals and it's not necessarily even aware of you in the way that you're not necessarily aware of the bug living in your eyelashes you know so like yeah where are we with respect to that particularly lovecraftian notion <laughs> And how is that going to shape, you know, because like when people last piece on this is because when people talk about, oh, all we got to do is get together in this humanist fantasy that somehow if we all just like stand in line be behind Greta Thunberg, that like we're going to be able to solve this. And it's like well, humans have not been at the wheel of civilization since it was civilization. Like it, the whole time it's been driven by these things that we're participating in and don't really have total control over. So that's, that's my belief. And I'm curious where you guys see that fitting into understanding what's coming and what forces kind of can be worked with and what forces can't be worked with. Well, I mean, I, I can give a shout out that one that like it ties into definitely some thoughts I've had specifically around the rise 
of disinformation and the extreme prevalence of people wanting to believe the disinformation and believe every uh, conspiracy theory, no matter how plausible or not. And and for before people know, I was telling everybody that the NSA was spying on them years before Snowden's revelations. So I'm not against conspiracy theories when they're true. I'm against them when there is no rational evidence. And I really think I do agree with some of these reactionary types in that I agree that we aren't necessarily thinking in an enlightenment frame of mind, but more a medieval frame of mind, but not for the reasons they think of like that, oh, well, uh, traditional Western civilization and that whole dog whistle is, is under threat. What I think of it more is that the epistemic chaos of that people rightfully can't agree on objective truth because as many philosophical schools have successfully just put it completely to bed like the postmodernists or even earlier somebody like Wittgenstein, we can never find objective truth. But I basically think most people, even though we think we're living in this secular age where people are becoming less religious, I don't actually think that's true. I think people still have as religious a minds as ever. What has changed is what the agent that is blamed for the misfortune is. In the past, if my home gets washed away in a flood, I clearly didn't give enough offerings to the river deity. Now when my home gets washed away in the flood, it's the evil company running the dam up the road that did it, or it's the evil political party that didn't fund safety inspections. Regardless of, now maybe it's true that's why it happened, but people don't actually need evidence to believe those things. We've replaced God's make bad people happen with people I don't like make bad things happen. It is the same worldview. You've just replaced who the subject of your misfortune is. See what David thinks now. Oh, man, I think a lot. First of all, I'm just going to say that I don't know about anyone else, but when I started giving tribute to the River Deity in 2020, it my life started turning around for the best. Pass the hat. <laughs> but something that I kind of have been playing with ever since I started reading Daniel C. Dennett's work, I don't know if anyone's familiar with him, but he's a neuropsychologist, neuroscientist. Michael's familiar with him. I was subtweeting him the other day. You wait, what? I was subtweeting him. I was disagreeing with him on Twitter. And of course, he's never going to respond. But Okay, I'm glad because I've since found better neuropsychologists to kind of like latch on to rationally. But yes, he is really aggressive towards the supernatural for no good reason. And I don't get it. It's always going to turn off. But I just stayed for the the science talk. Turn-ons. Friendly towards the supernatural. He'll learn. But the idea that the inhuman entities. I'm just going to call them entities. I think markets are entities. I think that institutions are entities. Currencies are entities. Is are. I don't know what the correct grammatical way to say that is. But I think that what the internet has done is initially it gave those entities a more tangible form in that cyber realm these entities have synthesized and mated and evolved and created new things that like you guys are saying we don't know what we're really dealing with i think that what can be worked with though is that what we do know and i hate to sound dehumanizing in this aspect but is that we're all literal data points whether or not you use social media or anything else your tax information your pay information your social security number all that stuff is kept somewhere in some data bank somewhere and someone is buying that data from whoever has it 
and using it to create these devices and these tools that we that exist in society. I think that once we I genuinely believe that people don't feel empowered to like actually believe that they can make a difference in the world they live in. And I think that by accepting that we are both axions and dendrites and that we're always receiving and giving out information, once we actually like take responsibility for how we're affecting each other with our own like internal somatic and cognitive experiences, I think that that self-work and then genuinely acting out of a place of healed, I just want to see my neighbor or the person across the table, the person wherever else with food in their mouth and water and a place to stay. I think that once that notion becomes normalized, because honestly, that's been beaten out of us, we've been conditioned to, I mean, we live in a state, Texas, I know you don't, but we live in a state where I think it's arguable that firearms are more accessible than like any kind of mental health assistance or aid. I hear you can only own six dildos. Yeah, like, let me tell you, that's, <laughs> that's a travesty. But I don't know, I think that once we start taking responsibility for ourselves and how we're affecting each other with our six dildos and our firearms and our, no, our non-mental health accessible system then you know let's all just imagine we're superheroes we're all the justice league we're all we're all here we're all affecting each other's lives we're all reality warpers so okay you're talking about the superheroes thing and i don't know if you're familiar with rice university philosopher and religious scholar jeffrey kripal but jeff kripal has written about about this about the return of the superhero archetype and like why now and it seems kind of obvious to me. I mean, let's set the whole multiverse thing apart, right? Because that's very interesting. But that's that's sort of a fold in this other thing, which is that clearly each of us is aware on some level that the promise of modern technology as a force multiplier, as something that would allow... You know, like, I don't know if any of you have seen that, that online widget that's it's your slave calculator... It's like how many, how many slaves you have without realizing it, meaning like how much invisible infrastructure is required in order to support your lifestyle. You know, like we drive around cars with 400 horsepower, right? Well, where, is the, where are those calories coming from? You know, like they're, they're being extracted out of the topsoil and out of mineral deposits. And, and you know, we are, we are like literally, you know, just like chewing up the surface of this planet and squeezing as much, you know, and as many jewels out of it as we can. And and so, you know, that's like a and and, and it, so there are these like there's a superhero thing in supervillain thing in that. Right. Which is that, you know, all of us have now grown up in the shadow of John Nash, you know, this brilliant mathematician who helped in pioneer game theory and helped with, you know, during the Cold War, establish a theory of mutually assured destruction. This idea that that if both sides are equally well armed and each side could blow up the world, then nobody's going to do it. And, you know, for years, I thought when I was a Google Glass Explorer back in, in 2013, I really thought that the solution to these surveillance capitalism problem was, you know, I had a kind of a John Perry Barlow attitude about it. I was like, well, we just need to, you know, he's a, you know, he grew up on a Wyoming cattle ranch. He was very pro everyone being equally well armed. 
you know, and, and everyone knowing everyone else's secrets. And that's, that's, I, I'm at a point now, you know, nine years later where I accept that that's true, but I'm, uh, but not completely true. And that it has to be held in tension with this other truth, which is that if, uh, th- that those kinds of arms races tend to accelerate over a cliff. And you can't necessarily ensure that everyone is operating according to the same rationale. You can't assume that every equally well-armed person has the same sort of local reasoning and, and like personal history and, and biased conditioned calculus about how they're going to make their decisions. And so, you know, you get, you get people, and this is what I love about modern superhero fiction, which is that it's actually done a really good job of showing the sort of magneto component which is the the like this is why this person thinks they're doing the right thing this is why this like this is i've got a buddy who's like you know what say what you will putin's a monster we're monsters too he's justified in feeling like the whole world is ganging up on him and you know i don't know geopolitics well enough to participate in those conversations but i can say that it, i think it's almost a law of physics that if you really knew why someone was doing this horrible thing that they were doing, then, then, you know, you would, you'd be able to respond better than if you can't. And so the point is that I feel like with the whole superhero thing is that all of us are, are becoming these incredibly powerful beings, even if we exist sort of at the bottom of this turtle pile of even more powerful people, you know, and we are being forced to reckon with that. And, and none of us seem, not none of us, I mean, you maybe you do, but very few of us seem like we've actually sat with this challenge, this like spiritual question of what it means to be extremely powerful and to have, to have this influence that you can't possibly fully understand on the rest of the world and, and, and to accept that, you know, some of us, probably do need to be like locked in a plastic box or whatever. Like, you know, that like, this is not just a, this is not just about giving everyone an AR-15. This is, you know, like it's not going to work, you know? So anyway, that's a lot of sort of different angles on a thing, but I'm curious to hear you speak to that about technological empowerment and the sort of challenge to personal development that required thereby. So I'm going to, this is, I think this is going to be like the ground that I'm going to stand on for the most of the conversation, but Somatic experiences, somatic and emotional experiences. I think that once people recognize that that is so prominent in our decision making, and that 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 makes us fragile, I think that means we're going to have to look at our own fragility. And I think that by looking at our own fragility, looking at our own ability and probability of falling apart, I think that that allows us, that gives us space to be more compassionate with ourselves and inherently gives us more space to be compassionate with other people. And so instead of looking for solutions where we have to overpower other people, we'll, we'll, be, more, we'll be more liable, not that we necessarily 100% will, but coming from that space, you'll be more liable to look for solutions that involve actually respecting and finding some kind of genuine reconciliation with an opposing party. And on your point on Putin, I'm just going to say that he hasn't done anything that every other major world leader has been doing for the past 
a very long time, so he is very justified being angry. I'm not justifying any kind of human rights violations, I, but I, I will say that he's not done anything worse than anyone else. So, Right. Pluck the Guantanamo out of your own eye first. Right? <laughs> the 1973 Chilean revolution that, you know, that we... CIA overturned. Yeah, let's you know. just over. Let's just put vampires in the Philippines and convince them that. Yeah, no, no, no. I'll I'll save that for another conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, my my only asterisk I add to those sort of thoughts is like, well, you know, he's still murdering people in Ukraine. I sort of put of it as like the U.S. has done just as horrible as stuff, but. I don't think that equals, well, then clearly we should have a moral race to the bottom where, like, now everything horrible is okay. But but there is a truth that, like, I mean, people criticized Soviet Russia because it was a surveillance state, and then we learn our own NSA was doing the exact same thing. So that there is some moral hypocrisy there. And, and I think also, I, I, oh, there's so many threads I could go with what you said, but, like, the superhero mentality of thinking that single ubermensches or great men of history, to use the uh, sexist 19th century phrase, this idea that we can solve problems with brilliant people, probably embodied most today, and Elon Musk is going to save us. I mean, he Why literally appears in Iron Man 2 in a cameo, and go back to the superheroes. But, like, but I think, like, so for instance, like, one thing EFF really fights for is like end-to-end encryption, which is a defensive technology, not an offensive technology. It helps preserve people's privacy. And I think we keep seeing, you know, law enforcement keeps asking for these back doors in violation of math and computer science and physics of <laughs> you cannot make a back door that only the good guys can open. Once it's there, anyone can open it. But I think they have this weird superhero idea of like, well, we'll just use it to catch bad guys and nobody will be hurt by this. But there's collateral damage to vulnerable people. I mean, like, we literally live in a state right now where women need encryption to get access to vital health care, to get an abortion when they need it. And, you know, that their privacy, their protection, that literally the encryption is a shield for them. And so I think too much the superhero myth creates this idea that, offensive action is the solution when i think a lot of times it it's about defensive action because as you've correctly said we're grappling with we're all sort of slowly becoming technological gods we can broadcast our voice anywhere on the planet we can personally wield the firepower of what would have been an entire army a few centuries ago we're all becoming incredibly powerful and it turns out with power comes responsibility and that even includes free speech i believe you can say anything you want but do i think that there should not ever be any consequences for what you say no you're i remember i just said your words are powerful they're literally a magic spell are you casting dark magic with them quite literally once again i'm going to bring up carlin who people often like to say well he was the ultimate defender of saying anything horrible you want he literally had a comedy routine where he said every single slur about every single group in a row. So they, so they look at that and go, see, he thinks we can say anything. But I think then to an incredibly wonderful interview he gave in 1990 when he was being asked to respond to the at-the-time controversial comedy of uh, Andrew Dice Clay, where he was asked, like, well, you know, what do you think of all the people who say everything he's saying is sexist, is, is vile, etc.? And Carlin basically said, well, first of all, I fully support his right to say it he should not be arrested for this there should be no laws against him saying it but but i think like 
he should maybe think about what he's saying because traditionally comedy has been used to attack the powerful and he's picking on powerless people. So can he say it? Yes. But should he say it? I don't know. I mean, and also when you start dehumanizing people, it's a slippery slope. Like Andrew Dice Clay should remember that He's Jewish, and, you know, the kind of language he's using that dehumanizes, people have used it on people like him. So it's like, yes, we all should be able to wield our own power, but that does not mean that if we use our power responsibly that everybody else doesn't have a right to be very angry at us. Yeah, so, okay, so I'm going to get hipster here, and I apologize if folks haven't caught this cultural reference but I really want to speak to this through Wonder Woman 1984 because you're talking about like the importance of worst superhero movie ever. <laughs> really? In my personal, well, I love- let me let, let me talk about it. Oh. Let me talk about it not as a critic of superhero films, but as someone who sees the predictive programming of large Hollywood projects as a way for the collective to process matters of importance like which is again why i think the multiverse thing is so big right now why why we had everything everywhere all at once and dr strange multiverse of madness in theaters at the same time and like rick and morty was on netflix and like and it's like what is what is going on here it's like because all of us are dealing with the the we're the the implications of this 20th century physics revolution has caught up with us culturally and we're realizing that we live in some kind of a splintered reality with all of these forks and all that people living in the same family you go you go home for thanksgiving and you're like you guys don't live in the same universe as i do anymore and so these this is like this is how we're dealing with this stuff and i think Okay, so Wonder Woman 1984. First of all, Wonder Woman, right? She's she's like a Jedi, right? She's got all the defensive tools. You know, she's got the shield. The lasso is just used there to contain people. It's not like Batman who doesn't have guns and then, you know, she's just like mowing down people with the Batmobile. No. No, this is somebody who is who is really committed to nonviolence ultimately and as, as far as that can be carried, you know, minimal force defund the police you know not just like leave your kids to get attacked but train people to de-escalate conflict to mediate conflict and so i love that about that character but then this film in particular i appreciated regardless of how it was executed for fans let's let's just be clear like it's nice to see a film that's not entirely about fan service that actually can speak to people outside of the the zone of that history of appreciation of that particular but at any rate, so that story is all about a, the villain has become a kind of wish-fulfilling genie-type character that is capable of granting wishes to anyone. And what happens when this person becomes so powerful and can empower everyone else in the world through broadcast media you know with like there's something about 1984 that my buddy jf martell has has spoken about and stranger things and our cultural fascination with the year that the apple computers ad ran on the olympics you know that there was that there was like a pivotal moment you know there was you know the the challenger was not far behind that and you know in aliens and terminator was that year aliens was 86 anyway there's something about the mid 80s and like the moment that we realized we were passing over this rubicon and now we're capable of having these conversations about 
oh my God, what happens if everybody gets what they want? You know, and, and just to be a, a total dick, this is another Michael Crichton novel, Sphere. Spoiler, because this is another thing where we're reckoning with what happens when all of us, like whatever we imagine comes true. You've got asshats out there like transhumanist Jason Silva who are so excited about the fact that technology, the, the gap between our ability to conceive a thing and to make it a physical object is getting smaller all the time. And it's like, yeah, but you're a teenager. Like you're an emotional adolescent. <laughs> You know, you don't want to die. Why should I trust anyone who is so afraid of death with the ability to 3D print anything they can imagine? You know, that seems like a bad idea. And and so, like, that's that's kind of just, you know, that's my rant. I'm, it's not exactly a question. But, I mean, I think it's so important in, in the conversation around and why I appreciated Wonder Woman 1984 was that it's ultimately addressing the same thing as Jurassic Park, which is, or Sphere, or all these other things, which is like, what happens when, like, ultimately, you know, t the technology is going to keep evolving, whether we want it to or not. And it seems like the situation that we're in, other than playing the, the work of triage of putting our fingers in the dam where we, you know, in order to prevent it from, you know, flooding a village, is this other thing, which is, is how, you know, how do we become more aware? How do we become less reactive to the desires that are presented to us. How do we become more responsible and less reactive, maybe? Is, yeah. There, I have a lot of ideas, but I think that one of them, one of the more cohesive and universal ones is conditioning a healthy sense of skepticism. I find myself constantly asking myself, is that really what I want to do right now? Is that really what I want? And then actually thinking about the consequences of my actions. And that usually, like, saves me from a lot of wasted time. But also, it's easier for me to do that when I'm, like, at the grocery store because I'm already primed with the, oh, man, they're just going to get me to spend as much money as they possibly can. So I already walk into a grocery store upset and ready to just, like, <laughs> resist. So that just, yeah, really, you, you have no idea. I went to Times Square and it was just... I had my shields up. I was doing incantations. It was a lot <laughs> scary. She saw me. She was like, yep, that's him. But no, I think that like just – and this is not the final step, but the first step is accepting that there are a lot of institutions of power that want to take advantage of you and your resources to survive. And then having that in the back of your head as long as you possibly can as much as possible will hold the space for you to be able to tell yourself no or to really say – Hmm, maybe I should really rethink this before I make a hard decision on how I feel about this. And a lot I could think and do with that. I guess I first will just be inspired to say that, well, you know, the it, it's a very resonant theme in, in fiction, what you're alluding to, not just like Wonder Woman 1984 or even Jurassic Park or, or what have you, but it's the strain of techno-utopianism that you can find it in many different genres. But it is this idea that if I just had enough power... I could make the world better, and the ultimate flaw in that, as many great stories have pointed out, is the very act of gaining power makes you no longer capable of the discernment to actually do good by others. You set yourself apart from the very people you're trying to help. This is ultimately what the temptation of the ring and the Lord of the Rings is about. It's how it corrupts people. They dream they could use it for good, and eventually it uses them. It's the same idea in Ursula K. Le Guin's The Lathe of Heaven, the idea that we could weaponize somebody's ability that their dreams become reality and we could fix the world. And, of course, you just keep making the world worse and worse, basically. Or you try to remove conflict 
perfect, but as a result, you make everyone the same, which doesn't seem like a win either. So, I mean, how, how do we actually get there? I think a lot of it is about understanding. And once again, I'm going to go back to the phenomenologists because ultimately the phenomenologists are they're, – philosophically, they're at the heart of the philosophy of technology, of the philosophy of the internet, of transhumanism, to bring it up again. I mean, unfortunately, the most prominent philosopher of phenomenology, Merton Heidegger, was literally a Nazi. But there's a lot of very brilliant thoughts there, despite that, unfortunately. He's most famously, if you've ever heard the silly aphorism, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. That's literally from Heidegger's being in time. That I, But basically, it's the idea that technology both physical and mental technology, literally shifts our perceptions of what it means to be ourselves. Like, they've studied this in, like, with road rage, that part of what drives road rage is people become embodied in the car. The car becomes their body. And so they get angry when another car gets too close to them because they literally feel like it's in their face, literally. And so I think a lot of what we're dealing with with the current Internet, the way it's built is literally changing our minds in ways that incentivize adverse and negative behaviors. Like, why did the old internet feel less toxic? Well, I don't know. In the old forum systems, there was no algorithmic amplification paid for. There was no liking. There was no easy ability to track someone everywhere they went in the forum to harass them if you didn't like what they said. The system, the literal system by which we were communicating, facilitated healthier dialogue than the systems by which we're now using. So I think a lot of what we need to do is think long and hard about how current social media networks operate and how we can maybe shift how they function technologically to incentivize the better angels of our nature, as it were. So that's a great place to lead into the last question I have for you, just because we do actually have a hard limit on the 5% left on my iPad. That, that's to your point earlier about that, you know, we're all bound by entropy. I was going to also and, say and, I'm, and I'm being but, censored, Michael, by your laptop. This is censorship. Yes, I won't yes. stand for it. Yeah, you take it to court. But no, so basically what it seems like we all agree with to some extent is that the solution is somehow having the wisdom or the incentives shaping our decision-making to put some of these genies back in the bottle. And, and, you know, to me, it's sort of like, well, that's not what happens. It's the second law of thermodynamics, you know, like you can kind of locally reduce entropy, but then you're actually, you're actually making more disorder outside of your gated neighborhood again. And eventually that comes back. And so part of it is like, I wonder to what extent, you know, to, to get to your point about like the more power and, you know, things getting more complicated, getting worse. It's like, you know, it seems like anything that we can do to stop the collapse of these unsustainable snowballing processes is actually going to just hasten them. But I don't want to come up this as a binary of like between collapse and success somehow, because there's so many different dimensions and degrees to which a system can fall apart and then new things can grow in in the space made by that fallen tree or whatever. So it's not like, you know, like one tree at a time can collapse. Not The whole forest ecosystem doesn't have to collapse at once. 
and and sometimes collapse is good, right? Because then new trees can come up. And so this is a you know a bloated metaphor. But like, what do you see as possibly some hope, some optimism, or like some what are some hopeful places to 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 draw our attention to in terms of things that maybe we would be okay with allowing to collapse? Or, you know, because otherwise they're not going to stop on their own, perhaps, you know, maybe. And I don't know. This is, a, I don't, this is a weird, unwieldy question. Oh, no, I have lots of thoughts on it. Yeah. Well, first of all, what, what does keep me somewhat optimistic? Believe it or not, it is as a student of history, knowing that as crazy and weird and on unstable ground as we all feel right now, knowing that we have gone through epistemological crisis of this nature before and we survived as a species, albeit... It got pretty bad. The last major one of these in Europe with the invention of the printing press eventually undermined the authority of the Catholic Church and literally led to the Thirty Years' War, which killed like a quarter of Europe. I'd really rather it doesn't get that bad. But I'd also remind us, well, we're a long way from it getting that bad the last time this happened. So, I mean, what can we actually do? I mean, so I want to touch on a few points this is the last question here um, that we just haven't gotten to because there's a lot of misconceptions on this and I want people to understand it. So part of why is it so hard to make healthy social media and why is purely relying on the First Amendment not going to help here? Well, a lot of things that people don't want on their social media are legal under the First Amendment. For instance, spam protected under the First Amendment. It is not illegal speech. You could literally flood a social network with nothing but bullshit spam and scams, and you're not violating the First Amendment. Also, pornography, not against the First Amendment. You could put nothing but pornographic content and links on it. You're not violating the First Amendment. But most people, when they're not going to a porn website, don't want to see that. Similarly, hate speech, not against the First Amendment. But most people rightfully don't want that in their community. So the problem is... The, the, to make an actual positive environment online, we can't just rely on the First Amendment, which is where I very much disagree with certain people like Elon Musk. He talks about banning bots. Those are protected under the First Amendment. He says, we'll just do what the First Amendment says. He doesn't know what the First Amendment says. Basic. <laughs> well, yes, that's another matter. But basically what I think we... rocket either. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> what I think we need to do to try to end on a positive note is what would be good to collapse? I think social media as it currently exists would be good to collapse. We need a new life form to emerge. And I highly recommend people to look into a concept that has been written about a lot in the peer-to-peer Web 3.0 space that Cory Docker is a champion of called subsidiarity. But it is, and it's also related to a concept that Tech Dirt's Mike Masnick champions called protocols, not platforms. The basic ultimate idea is social media needs to be transformed into a federated technology just like email. It would remove almost all the problems the technology currently has, and it would give people the power to define their own communities without being subject to the censorship whims of big platforms. Because actually, misconceptions aside, because EFF studies censorship globally, and despite the narrative that certain rich white men would promote, it is primarily marginalized communities who are censored online. The vast majority of online censorship is from people of color, from women, from LGBT people, ex- poor people, etc. That is the bulk of the censorship. A few rich people with a megaphone are distorting this conversation. And so I think what we need to do is build, empower people to communicate with who they want to communicate with 
and not communicate with who they don't want to communicate with. Because it's not just free speech, it's free association as well. That is an equally important right. If I am forced to listen to you, my rights are just as being violated as if I'm forced to shut up. So I think we need to empower <laughs> people that. to have their own social media communities. Holochain. So just real quick, I find it funny. So while I was doing some research, I found that there was a pharmaceutical company in the 70s that wanted to publish their uh, prices. And it was illegal because apparently the government didn't think that allowing that information to exist and be accessible to people would foster a healthy practice of pharmaceutical things. Here we are. But one of the things that came out of that case was that the First Amendment is applied as much to the listener as it is the speaker and that the listener is entitled to what the speaker has to say, at least in a commercial sense. So that's just something to like sit on for a little bit. Kind of makes me mad. But because I'm not, I don't want to hear what every company has to say to me that's trying to sell something to me. But anyway, I think that I don't know what needs to collapse, but I can say that I see a lot of hope and that there are discussions like this happening because that means that we still have the capacity to ask the question. And as far as long as we have the capacity to ask the question, we will have the capacity to find a solution. And the solution might not be perfect. I can pretty much guarantee it won't be perfect. But I second that. There is no perfect solution. Anybody who tells you otherwise is selling you something. Yes, but no. Yeah, I think that, again, as long as we're asking the question and we're still making investments and at least personal actions to kind of subvert things, that that's, that's where the hope is. To quote Camus, one must imagine Sisyphus is happy. I love that. I saw that on a t-shirt at the Oregon Eclipse Festival in 2017. Anyway, I would like to ask the two of you just quickly, if, if, you've, if you have not said anything in this hour plus that you feel is really important to say, now is your chance before the iPad dies. I mostly tried to get all the things I hadn't said I wanted to say in in the last question. But I guess I will just end with a brief advertisement for EFF Austin and EFF. If you have spare money, give it to EFF because they're the people doing the real important work. But if, if you're listening from Austin, reach out to us. We have a website. Please get in touch. But also just... Yeah, fo follow EFF and follow the thinkers in this space who I really think are advancing this conversation positively and, and deepening the conversation. So we've alluded to the thoughts of a lot of people in this conversation, but I encourage you to re research the writings and works of Cory Doctorow, of Mike Masnick, of Cindy Kahn, of Soshana Zuboff, etc. Really smart people grappling with these things who understand that, you know, we, we keep getting told that, like, this subject of free speech is so easy, and I think it's like – it's just like everything seems very simple when, like, you're a kid and it's first explained to you until you realize that actually there's always a complex competing network of people's rights and obligations to each other. And so this is not easy, and people – telling us it is easy are wrong. And actually, okay, final thing, if I can say it before it crashes. So one thing EFF works to protect is Section 230 of the CDA. I don't have full time to get into that law or the history of it, but it basically has to do with websites both cannot be 
punished for not moderating, but they also can't be punished for moderating their platforms. And this is very important. We can't have user-generated content sites without this law because it opens websites up to too much liability. You can't have social media or comment sections of any kind without this law. And both uh, Republicans and Democrats hate this law for different reasons. Republicans hate it because it lets Twitter kick Donald Trump or Alex Jones off, and the left tends to hate it because it lets toxic, vile voices not be kicked off if the platform doesn't want to kick them off. And, you know, I'm certainly far more sympathetic to the left-wing impulse there than the right, but... It's a law that's one of these things where it's like, once again, we talk about imperfect. Like, I will acknowledge there's probably times where that law has let some shady, terrible people get away with stuff they shouldn't. But at the end of the day, it is what allows all of us to freely speak online. Companies couldn't host us in our speech without this protection. So there are better ways to solve some of these free speech issues than getting rid of that law. And if you want to know more about it, I I suggest you sincerely research it, especially um, look into the career of Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who is probably our best senator on digital civil liberties issues. He is awesome. Um, He's basically the EFF senator. But he crafted this law back in the late 90s. And, you know, he's really thoughtful on these issues. And I really encourage you to read his own writings and thoughts on why he crafted this law the way he did. But I just wanted to say it's a law that keeps us safe, lets us all express ourselves. It's not perfect, but getting rid of it is not going to make either side of the political spectrum happy with what the consequences would be. David, take us out. Word is power. Word has been power since Tohoji has been the heart of Ra, since Hermes has been the messenger of the Greek gods, and since Enoch ascended to the Mediterranean. Word has always been an extremely important thing to various cultures, and we all have it. We all have speech. We have the ability to communicate. So we should all treat that as a powerhouse and just be really responsible with the things that we say and communicate. Thank you both for being here. And thanks everybody for listening now and in the future. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. If you want more, my latest essay, The Future is Noisy, was just published to return.life. I've been experimenting with Midjourney, which is a platform for AI text-to-image artwork. Recordings from the last book club call will be out on Patreon soon. And in many other axes and dimensions, I look forward to exploring creative unfolding together with you. Stay in touch and wiggle your toes.